What's up, everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift. We're an SLP couple from California with three boys and a passion for finding better ways to support autistic kids. I'm Chris. You might know me as Speech Dude. I'm a neurodivergent high school SLP and the creator of the dynamic assessment of social-emotional learning, and I specialize in crafting neurodiversity-affirming IEPs through my online course. And I'm Jesse, a sensory integration trained SLP, owner of a top rated clinic in Los Angeles, and the creator of the Inside Out Sensory Communication Programs for Parents and Therapists. Join us weekly to learn neurodiversity affirming ways to support social emotional development and regulation in autistic kids. Are you ready to make the shift? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making the Shift. Today, we are so fortunate to have our friend and colleague, SLP Carrie Ebert here. You guys know her for her incredible seminars, books, products, just that you got a lot going on, a lot to be known for. Absolutely. We are just so honored to have you here today, and we have been friends with Carrie for a few years. I remember actually the first time I found you on social media and I was like shocked because I I found your page and I was like, I say these exact things. Oh my God, like I am you. And I sent you a video, I think. You did, you did. And I was so tickled because I was new to Instagram. I didn't even know what the heck I was doing. And you like sent me an audio, you know, like an actual message. And I was like, how do I do this? And it was, you were sitting on a park bench and you were like recording (laughs) yourself. And I was like, well, this is the coolest person ever. So it was just so neat. So I started following you and it was, it was neat. So we've never met in person yet. Never yeah, yet. we're instant friends. Sometime soon. That will happen. Absolutely. It will. But, um, it will. Yeah, it's just been so awesome getting to know you. And we really wanted you to come on today to really be able to share your experience, not only as an incredible SLP, but also parent of an autistic child and kind of how you have integrated those two parts of your life together. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys for, for asking me to participate. I'm, I'm honored and I'm excited to uh, share a little bit of my journey and growth uh, over the past um, couple decades. Right. Absolutely. Before we jump into the topic, I have a quick question. Okay. When I was growing up, my favorite TV show was called Siskel and Ebert. Uh, and I need to know. I need to know this. Yes, are you related? Were you related? I know. I love it. People, when I first got married and became an Ebert, everybody's like, "Are you related to like Roger Ebert? You know, I the movie know critic?" And we are not. I have checked all of my husband's like family lineage. We have no relation, but everybody remembers the name when I say Ebert. They're like, "Oh, I've heard that name before." <laughs> I, I was that was my show. Like it's still till this day. You can ask Jesse. Like before we watch a Netflix show or a movie, uh-huh. I'm on Rotten Tomatoes, like finding out what the audience is saying, and yep. Um, that's that's kind of how I got my yep, I love it. Things. I love it. Excellent. Um, Excellent. So, so jumping into our tonight to to the show's topic, um, I would like, I guess, to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, where um historically you come from the perspective of the role at the IEP table mm-hmm. um in all settings, right? From the parent perspective, sure. where so let's start back historically yeah. where things were. 
Yeah. So my son, Aaron, is 18 years old. He's a senior in high school, blows my mind, just got his um, senior pictures back today. And I'm just reeling with emotion. Like, um, so back in 2007, when Aaron was first diagnosed, he got a provisional diagnosis of autism from his pediatrician um, before he went and got that formal, you know, diagnosis. And so he was two and a half years old. And in 2007, autism was very much considered a tragedy. And so as an early intervention SLP, I was working with the birth to three population, you know, going into the family's homes. I was often the first person to talk about, I can't even believe I used to say these words, red flags of autism, right? So um, for me then to have a son um, who is, and we used to say, you know, who had autism um, back then, uh, it was so much for me to deal with that what I did is I just didn't. I denied it, even though I had this provisional diagnosis. And I can remember coming home from work and thinking, well, he does have an ear infection right now. That's probably why he's not responding to his name. So what I started doing was justifying, oh, we, the reason he wants to stand and flip the light switch on and off 200 times in a row is because we just moved into this house and he couldn't reach the light switch at the last house. And so I can remember trying to justify his developmental concerns with, um, you know, these rationalizations because back then to have an autistic child, it was considered very tragic. And the only recommendation back then was 40 hours a week of ABA, you know, intensive behavior therapy, which I at the time didn't um, align with um, in my practice. Um, I've always been very much a relationship-based provider. And so even back then, before there was any such thing as neurodiversity affirming services or anything, I was not aligning with what the current trend was you know, for um, autism treatment. Uh, Please understand back then, Autism Speaks was very much looking for a cure. I mean, they were absolutely spending millions and millions of dollars looking for a cure. So um, when I graduated with my master's in 1995, the DSM-4 had just been released in 1994. And the DSM-4 was the one, do you remember it had five subtypes of autism? It had Asperger's, it had PDD-NOS. Remember PDD-NOS? That was the diagnosis like the catch-all. Like you're not autistic enough, but you're quirky as all get out. So we're going to throw you into this catch-all, you know, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. And then there was autistic disorder. And then there was RET. You know, there were five different subtypes. Well, um, then um, when the 2000, or when the, the DSM-5 came out in 2013, you know, and they said, no, it's one spectrum. So everything has changed, like just for me professionally, you know, being trained under the DSM-4 criteria, and then in 2013, having to switch to the DSM-5 criteria. And my whole understanding of what my role is as a speech language pathologist in supporting um, autistic kids, it has shifted so much. And I have to say, the pandemic hit in 2020, right? And as a professional speaker, uh, I was unemployed, like instantly. I was in Fresno, California on March 5th, 2020. And I had no idea at the time that was my last in-person training for 570 days. 570 days. I was unemployed. Isn't that crazy? So when I was there, so when I came home, the silver lining to the pandemic for me was I didn't work for a year and a half. I started doing a few webinars, you know, toward the end of 2020, but I was basically unemployed. So what I did is I got on social media and I started following every autistic person that I could possibly find. And I am telling you, it was the most like 
unreal growth for me professionally and personally. Um, I have shifted what, what, you know, making the shift, right? I mean, you guys, I can't even tell you how much I have changed um, in the language that I use in what it has done to me to become neurodiversity affirming. I spent that year and a half writing my autism program for birth, the three providers for early intervention. I went back and started redoing all of my handouts to make sure they were neurodiversity affirming. And I'm talking about like my apraxia handouts. I'm going to Praxia specialist too. And so I had to go in because it with toddlers, it can be difficult to weed out is this autism or is this apraxia because there's a lot of overlapping traits in two-year-olds you know in these very young children so I had to go through and like rework all my apraxia handouts and make those neurodiversity affirming so um it has been I don't even know when I first became a professional speaker in 2009 I didn't even talk about having an autistic son I wasn't there yet. I never brought it up. I was an apraxia specialist. And that's all I talked about as I traveled around the country. And then I guess I just had a point in my life where I realized my journey might matter to someone else, right? That my experiences, our family's experiences might end up helping other families and therefore helping other children. And so I finally started talking about the fact that I had an autistic son and it blew everyone's mind because, and it wasn't that I was hiding it. It just, for me personally, I wasn't at a place where I felt like I could just talk about it, you know, with random people. So it's been quite a journey for me over the last 18 years. I love that. And it's like taking the past experiences and using that as an academy to continue the growth. And I've been watching uh, all your stuff with Aaron on social media and just seeing the way that you work with the the support um, is just phenomenal because it just helps so many. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah absolutely. It's, it's really the neat thing about the world we live in today, right? We live in the digital age and you think about how amazing it is that a you and I can be friends and we've never met each other right that we um are able to support families in Ireland you know pro- pro- professionals in Australia you know you think about just this the magnitude of reach that we have living and working in the digital age and i think when aaron was younger how much better my mental health would have been if I would have had supports. Because I'll be honest with you, as a parent, I pretty much felt like it was just me. You know, I was the only one that this was, ha- I didn't know how to connect with other families. It wasn't like um, easy to do. And so I just think how crazy amazing is this world that we live in that if you want to learn about gestalt language processors or you want to learn about sensory or you want to learn about apraxia or autism or neurodiversity affirming you can literally get out your your device and you can find the most amazingly um, authentic people who just are driven to share in an effort to support others and I just think there's so much beauty in that oh I I totally agree on that. I was thinking back on my my childhood and just the lack of being able to reach out with social media and the and the the resources were real limited and the knowledge and the information that we had yeah. and the doctors not really having any information and you know honestly thinking about even media it's like watching TV shows like Leave it to Beaver where you know a child <laughs> has like a difficult problem and it's resolved in 20 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) Like everybody sits at the dinner table and they all have these huge smiles and they're like, I'm eating all my food. And it's like, okay, this is not reality. You know what I mean? I'm glad you say that. That reminds me (laughs) because 
I always talk to parents in our program about like leaving those expectations behind because we we have these ideas of oh we're gonna have dinner together and everyone's gonna be happy and then we're gonna play a board game and it's like it never goes I could even tell you guys that Jim and I my husband and I sometimes talk about how the stress around mealtime because Aaron is I now call him a safe eater you know he was always more than a picky eater I for a while used the term resistant eater but he was very much he's he's got a lot of um sensory um, processing, um, differences. And so mealtime has always been very stressful. And I had it in my head that darn it, he's going to sit at this table and he's going to eat with the family. And so after working all day, I'd come home and the stress around mealtime, the epic meltdowns. And I look back and I think it's too bad. I had it in my head that mealtime had to be a certain way. So when I talk now about meeting the child where they're at, about honoring, you know, their, their sensory preferences, their sensory needs about, um, honoring autistic joy. I mean, I just have so many like one-liners now that I use that I think I didn't practice them because I didn't have anybody guiding me. You know what I mean? I had raised two typical daughters. And so I thought I knew how to parent. And then I had an autistic child and everything I thought I knew about parenting was literally because, um, his sensory needs and nobody, Jesse, I just, nobody talked about sensory back then. Nobody, like it just wasn't even a thing, right? Um, our OTs, a few of them had some sensory knowledge, but like when my son was diagnosed, all the supports we got, I always joke. I was like, all they cared about those early intervention providers was Aaron had to play appropriately with the Fisher price barn and all the damn animals, pardon my French, but I'm like, Aaron could have cared less about the Fisher price barn, but darn it at two years old, you had to make the animals walk and make them eat. And if you were lining up the animals, or if you were showing no interest in the animals, you know, then, then, then we have a problem. Right. So that kind of appropriate play, age appropriate play. And gosh, I look at where we are now. And that's why every social media post I do about neurodiversity affirming services is about, you know, I always say whether it's an IEP or an IFSP, what does the I stand for? individualized. And yet I see us pulling from banks of goals and trying to do the same types of therapy activities with every child or student. And I'm like, nothing about that is going to be neurodiversity affirming, right? You have to, you better know what gives every autistic child their brain tingles. And if you don't know what gives them their brain tingles, if you don't know what their interests are, if you don't know what their strengths are, what their passions are, what their fascinations are, if you don't know what their sensory needs are, if you don't provide unrestricted access to um, multimodal communication, you are not providing neurodiversity affirming services, right? So it's not about like teaching to the test and can he stack four blocks and can he label five animals in less than 20 seconds? Like that kind of stuff that we test, you know, as SLPs, when we take right. those language tests, I'm just like, there is nothing, I mean, nothing about that is functional, nothing whatsoever. And can I tell you, and listen to me, I'm just rambling, but can I tell you one of the coolest things I've learned by listening to actually autistic voices is this autistic the 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 autistic profile okay in young children um they're they're um the way they meet their developmental milestones they have a spiky profile and I love that term that it is spiky I used to say they had scattered skills right that was always the term I used when I you know would write reports but I love this idea of a spiky developmental profile my son Aaron was reading he was spelling and reading by two and a half he I just did a post on this a couple days ago he was spelling long words like observatory and astronaut now he had no idea what they meant okay but he was spelling words he was drawn to words and he was echoing you know and using echolalia and repeating long 
strings of words, but he had no, at the time, what we would say functional communication, right? He wasn't saying mama or help me or milk, right? I mean, he just wasn't doing that. So as an SLP, I felt like I was failing my own child. Like how, you know, because I didn't know anything about how autistic children develop language, right? We, we were taught as SLPs, at least when I was in grad school, that echolalia was pathologic but you needed to extinguish it, right? So gosh, I look where we are in 2023. Can't believe it's 2023 now as Aaron is a senior in high school. And I think, wow, what a journey. And look how far we've come, but we have so much further to go. So, so much further to go. Were there any like moments you could think of that was like like a specific moment in time where you're like, man, I wish I knew this or like, I wish I knew this sooner or like some big aha moment that you had where it like all made sense. I will tell you, I think that when people ask me, like if you had one piece of advice for other parents of, you know, autistic children, and this is, and I actually put this in like my, my kind of dedication in my autism book, but the thing, and this has probably been about, I'm going to say four or five years that I've been saying this, this is my mantra. And if I can share anything with parents, it's this forward is forward, no matter the speed. And that goes against everything that we were taught as SLPs, because we were taught you got to give standardized tests, you got to see what their deficits are, then you need to teach to the test. So when you give them that test again in six months, that it shows progress. And when you have a spiky developmental profile, progress is not like this, it will never be like this. And so for me, it was this whole thought of, you know what, it doesn't matter when Aaron potty trains. It only matters that Aaron potty trains. And if he doesn't, that we have a way to meet his toileting needs, right? It doesn't matter when Aaron, um, you know, can eat with a fork, right? I mean, it's this whole idea because there were all these expectations, these milestone charts the pediatrician would bring out, all the therapists would bring out. And here's my kid all over the place, right? With all these milestones. Well, he's still like that. I mean, I asked him the other day, I said, buddy, are you ever going to drive a car? And he thought about it and he goes, maybe when I'm 25, I'm like, all right, cool. So I'll ask you when you're 25, you know, is he's 18. So he knows he's an adult now. And so, um, you know, legally, and he said, so mom, I'm an adult, but I don't have to buy my own house. Do I like, no dude, if you want to live with us, you can. (laughs) And I'm like, how funny to me that he like lays awake at night thinking, crap, do I have to go buy a house? Cause he said, that sounds like a lot of work. I said, dude, it is a lot of work. Yeah. What goes through his brain (laughs) because he knows he's legally an adult now. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, we're, we're getting ready for, you know, a major transition um, uh, with having a senior in high school, but gosh, I just think, I've started really allowing myself as a parent, forget the SLP in me, but as a parent to kind of go back and I don't know, process and deal with the emotions of all those years, because I will tell you, I just don't think I dealt with it. You know, as a parent, I, I, one thing that I've, I've really started reiterating a lot in my autism course is that in order to be neurodiversity informed as a provider, that means you're trauma informed. You must be right. Those two things are are connected. You can't say that I'm one and not the other. So those two things go together. And I will just say that as a parent, I'm not sure our emotional needs ever really get addressed or dealt with because you've got this child with a disability. And now you have to go all in making sure they are, you know, supported at school and that you're, you know, and I just have, I mean, horror stories and good stories too, but things that I was just trying to make sure that his basic human rights were not being violated, you know, um, when he was non-speaking, especially, 
And I just am not sure. Um, thank goodness, you know, my husband and I have a really strong relationship. A lot of times um, that gets torn apart, you know, in all of that, mm -hmm. that emotional chaos that happens um, once a diagnosis um, is given. But I, I will say he and I, my husband and I spend a lot of time drinking wine and really almost kind of going back and going, do you remember when? And can you believe how we made it through that? And, you know, just sort of dealing with it now after the fact. And so it's, it's pretty fascinating. My mother-in-law um, just gave us our tape of our wedding and like she had it transferred from like a VHS tape to a DVD and she gave it to us for Christmas. So we watched it last night with Aaron. The quality was horrible. It was so ridiculous. And oh my, it was so nineties. I can't even tell you, but Aaron watched with us and he was just amazed, you know, at everything. And he's like, so I wasn't here yet. So it was just interesting having him even, you know, and be able to participate in that conversation. It's just really been, I, I don't know, everything about him amazes me when he was three, four or five, I wasn't sure if he would ever, you know, speak. Um, and it was back one last thing back then AAC augmentative and alternative communication was considered a last resort. There was absolutely no, everything was make him talk. He needs to talk. We have to get him talking. So that's why all of us who are neurodiversity affirming really have this big push to honor all forms of communication, right? That mouth words are not um, somehow more important or more valuable than other forms of language. And so I always say this language trumps speech, right? It, uh, the, the, goal, oh, yeah. the goal is communication, right? SLPs, the goal is communication. The goal is not speech. And so I think that is a message. I hope they're starting to send to grad students, SLP grad students, because I certainly was not trained that way. Right. I think that's an effective approach too, even in the IEP when it comes to the accommodations, back to what you were saying earlier on, really emphasizing the I, individualizing yeah. it. <laughs> what we see all too often is on the accommodations, uh, it says preferential seating and uh -huh. it's done <laughs> yeah. on test. And you're like, wow, that's really individualized. Yeah, yeah. Out yeah. on an IEP in America. Exactly. So like really reframing that to say, hey, you know what, maybe some accommodations on working with autistic students and saying, Hey, you know what? Having access to multimodal communication. Exactly. Would really sure be helpful. Yeah. And when we say, you know, modifications and accommodations, what kind, because there should be sensory, there right. should be executive function. There should, you know what I mean? We, we have to get specific about, and I always say this, every IEP, every IFSP goal, I mean, everything we work on should basically be focused on just a few things. Um, communication, getting their sensory needs met for self-regulation. Um, they uh, uh, Self-advocacy should be a, a major goal for everybody, for, you know, regardless of age. Um, and then executive function support, you know? So it's really oh. about, you know, creating modifications and accommodations that support the neurodivergent student and the way they learn, right? It's not about fixing the kid. See, when my son was diagnosed, it was about fixing the kid because yeah. the kid was clearly broken. And so here I go getting all passionate, but I mean, this is what I always say is my son is not a broken or disordered version of a neurotypical child. Okay. He is simply wired differently. Right. So it's not that he's broken. So I don't need some professional to come in and fix him. I don't even fix his deficits. What I need you to do is figure out what his strengths are. I need you to figure out how he learns. And then I would like it if you teach the way that he learns, right? That is what a free and appropriate education means is he, you need to teach the way he 
learns, right? Because he doesn't learn the way neurotypical children do. And so um, I, I um, am a, an autism consultant for several school districts around the country now. And one of the things that I am starting to find is that we, um, as a collective whole, do not yet know how to educate autistic students. I think that we are, the majority of uh, school districts are confused um, because they are just saying, oh, well, let's just pull them out and put them in a self-contained classroom and provide preferential seating or whatever. And we're going to call that good. You're not meeting their sensory needs. You're not providing, uh, you know, executive function um, modifications and, you know, all those things. I'm like, I'm not seeing that we're doing anything. And then guess what? All the autistic students end up being behavior disordered because if you don't meet their needs um, and don't give them a way to communicate, they're going to have challenging behaviors. But that's our problem, not their problem. We talk about that all the time. And then just as you're saying that makes me think of, I feel like one of the things we hear most from parents is just the worrying about the future. Yep. You know, it's always like, what's going to happen when? Yes. Can I tell you what what I say when a parent asks me about the future? Because for your listeners to know, one of the things that we lose sleep over at night, parents of children with disabilities, is who's going to take care of them when I die? And I know that sounds very morbid, but as a breast cancer survivor, I was very close to that. I mean, and that was something that I really struggled with um, when I was diagnosed 10 years ago, because I thought nobody can take care of my son like I can, right? But um, when parents ask me, so there are very real things that we have to deal with. And Jim and I are on this mission to become as healthy as we possibly Possibly can because our goal is to live as long as we can. You know what I mean? For Aaron, not, I mean, for our other children too, but Aaron needs us um, so much, you know? And so we are, we are on this mission, but um, when parents ask me and start talking about the future, like, oh, I have this three-year-old. I wonder if he'll ever live on his own. I wonder if he'll go to college. I wonder if he'll get a job. What I always say to parents is when we um, talk about the future, when we start thinking about, you know, goals and programming, autism programming, when we talk about the future, we want to think about the next six months. Because that's the only thing we can control is what's happening in the next six months. Um, Because if somebody would have decided my son's future, you know, at 18 when he was three, I'm telling you, they would have missed it by a mile, you know. So um, when we we think about the future, we're just going to think about six months. And that's how Jim and I really keep our sanity is instead of worrying about what if, what are we going to do? What if Aaron can't get a job? What if we don't, we worry about what are we doing in the next six months? So right now um, we are about five months away from graduation. Our daughter gets married in June. So we've got graduation in May, wedding in June. And that's as far as we're planning for now. And I'm telling you, it's just a really healthy way. Um, I'm not saying we ignore, you know, the far down the road future, but I'm just saying um, it's easier when you take it six months at a time, it's more manageable. And I think another benefit of that is it helps you to focus on the tactical, what can we do right now, instead of like looking at those big picture goals, you're looking at the, but what can we do right now? Absolutely. Forward is forward, you know? That's right. That's right. And you get those actionable steps that can actually be met. uh, And it's, um, it's, it's important and it's good for your mental health, because if you worry about things, what, what's going to happen in 10 years, you know, you can't, you can't control what's going to happen in 10 years. Right. So um, yeah, 
So that's where we're at. But yeah, autism is something that I can now, I can now say I have an autistic son. I can say my son, you know, is is disabled. I have a disabled son. And I'm telling you, those are words that I never thought I would say um, because uh, when he was diagnosed, it was hush, hush. And remember back in the day, because I'm, I'm, I'm much older, there was a time when I was in grad school, we learned that they used to think that autism was caused by refrigerator mothers, you know, blame poor mom for not loving their baby enough. Well, we know, okay. So it's not refrigerator mothers. Well, when Aaron was diagnosed, it was vaccines all the way. So I was being shunned for vaccinating my son because I caused his autism. So how grateful are we now that we finally are done with pseudoscience, right? And we're saying autism, kids are, you don't get autism, right? Uh, A child is born autistic because it is in their, it's in their genetic makeup. I mean, it's not something you cause. And so for me, that, um, was almost a, a relief because I, I can't tell you how long I thought, what did I do wrong? You know what I mean? When I was pregnant with him, what did I do? Because everybody blames mom, you know, for, for, for doing something. And so that was important for me to be able to say nothing caused his autism, you know, and also to get people to, to recognize that you don't need to apologize that my son is autistic, right? Don't, don't be sorry. He's not a mistake. He's not broken. Right. So, um, and he's not an optional member of society. So, um, we better figure out autism acceptance and start practicing it. I think that's huge. I mean, we talk a lot about and we emphasize on the trauma informed practices and care with focus on the clients and students, but also looking at a holistic view of of the families. And I think that what you're mentioning right now of coming to recognizing that trauma, but part of that being, hey, you know what? It's a different neurotype. We're in a we're in a place now where we're slowly reducing the stigma and and all of that is is in turn creating healing in a way oh and it is chris i mean it is so healing and i just feel like as a professional speaker now that i can talk about my journey you know um as an slp who has an autistic child it has been so cathartic for me i mean i can actually say things now that you know even five seven ten years ago nobody even knew nobody professionally even knew that i had an autistic son because it was still such so so stigmatizing. Right. And it was, and I'm just so grateful now that, um, you know, uh, that, that it's something that we can talk about. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm so vocal on, on social media, I guess not vocal. I don't do enough videos, but you know, I do my little posts on just share, share share information. Um, and, and it's information that I sure wish somebody would have said to me because I, did not deal with it. I did not cope with it. And I just think now I am at the best place I've ever been with my mental health because I can talk about these things um, and, and know that, um, I don't know, that it's not, I'm not being judged like I used to be. I just feel like having an autistic child, I used to be judged. Somehow it was, I was to blame for that, you know? And you're essentially, you know, building your tribe, you're building your community by talking about it and attracting people to you who, you know, want to and need to hear your messages. And yeah, essentially you talking about it is creating this network of support. And, and that's why I say, how grateful are we that we live in the digital age as crazy it is, as it is. And there are a lot of negatives because this is highly addictive and, you know, I mean, <laughs> we can go that way too, but I'm just saying, had I had the kind of support from complete strangers, caring, loving, um, uh, authentic strangers who wanted to help on social media, I would be in a different, you know, I would have been in a much different place in my life. So I'm honored when parents, you know, uh, message me, um, you know, on Instagram or DM me or whatever, and say, thank you. You have 
have, you know, I needed to hear that today, or you've changed my whole perspective. And I'm like, that's clearly, you know, what I'm put on this planet to do. I mean, I, I, yeah. I love to talk clearly. We're supposed to be done 10 minutes ago. Um, uh-huh. And so I um, absolutely uh, feel like I have a message now. And um, so I'm grateful that people care uh, to listen. So that's right there with the intrinsic motivation, right? Because it's creating right. that sense of meaning and purpose. Yeah, the sure. other thing too, is that you had mentioned that early on you had saw a certain type of approach that was based on compliance and you said nope something's not sitting right isn't that crazy and you but that that's that's what's remarkable about you carrie is that you're able to have already had this knowledge or this skill or this insight with a different lens already and then you took that at through your journey you created content and changing the world and that's just freaking awesome you're doing all these incredible things but we are just so grateful you are here we love you so much oh i love you guys so much and hey carrie before we wrap it up uh, can you share with the audience with our viewers where they can find you um anything that's upcoming all that good stuff uh social media website yeah yeah I mean, CarrieEbertSeminars.com is my website. We're doing a, we just hired a company, so it'll be a whole new website very soon. So we're excited about that. Uh, on Instagram, my handle is CarrieEbertSeminars. So it's C-A-R-I is my first name, Carrie. It's spelled kind of weird. And then no. Ebert, like Siskel and Ebert. Um, so I, I, it cross post to Facebook. I don't get much on Facebook much. I'm more of an Insta, Insta girl. So, um, but yeah, I'd say that those are the best places uh, to find me and to follow me. And I have my new podcast, which they are just short snippets, 15 to 30 minutes. They're just me and my husband actually talking. So we, um, it's very, very cool. It's called SLP talk show. So it's on all the, you know, Apple podcasts, wherever you listen to Spotify, whatever. Um, and I don't do interviews uh, on our podcast. It's literally just me talking and Jim, he's my, my color guy. So yeah, we have a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun. I feel like I'm like such a stalker. Cause I know so much about your family now. It's, yeah. it's kind of fun. And I made sure, you know, to ask my three kids, you know, is it okay if I share stuff? And they're like, if it helps other families, mom, you know, and Aaron is like, you know, he's loves wild animals. So we do wild animal posts when he's in the mood and he'll come up to me randomly and be like, mom, I need to teach your people about the peregrine falcon. You know, so he calls all you guys, my people. He's like, I need to teach your people <laughs> about. So he just, so he knows, he knows people always say, Are, is it okay that you're posting about Aaron? I'm like, I always show him every post before I post it. And I make sure he's, especially if there's a picture, you know, and he's always like, yeah, that one's okay. So um, I, I think it is important to be respectful, you know, of our children and make sure that they are okay with it. But um, yeah, my whole family, we are in this together and it is to build autism awareness, not just on April 7th because that's coming people april 2nd is one of 365 days so april 2nd to me i stay off social media on that day i'm not interested um let the people who only talk about autism once a year do their thing and then we'll go back to autism acceptance not autism awareness we need acceptance too um and so um it's something that all of us you know are doing those of us who are quite active on social media and who are neurodiversity affirming um really trying to um I don't know, just keep the message out there that we're not going away. You know, you can, you can yell at me and you can say, I get, I'm so, man, I've had to get thick skin. People are not nice sometimes, you know? They sure are not. You know, I know (laughs) you and I have had that conversation in the past. It's like sometimes that when you have a certain thing that the status quo has been so used to and new ideas or concepts come in, 
they sure do like to target you, but Ooh, it's, yeah. yeah, but it's coming from an understanding of, Hey, we're in the evolutionary phase of, we are. Um, you know, making changes. And that's right. And, and how awesome is that we're part of this neurodiversity movement? I mean, I feel so honored that I am, I, I get to be a part of it professionally and personally. And uh, my Angelo's ver- quote, I mean, I don't know it exactly, but it's something that I say all the time, you know, better, you do better. So don't tell me this is how we always did it or, you know, whatever is evidence-based or this is, this is the recommendation. Oh, no, 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 no. We're listening to the true autism experts now. And the true autism experts are actually autistic voices. We're done listening to self-proclaimed holistic or non-autistic autism experts. And that's why I would yeah. never call myself an autism expert. I specialize in autism at work, which means I attend every continuing education course I can about autism. I read everything I can about autism, but I am not an expert because I don't have the lived experience. So everything that I proclaim about autism is actually coming from actually autistic voices. And so um, I think that's why uh, it's it's important to make sure we don't call ourselves autism experts, right? Because- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, glad you bring that up yeah absolutely and i think that yeah just gaining insight from those lived experiences from the autistic community is just it's life that's changing. It's, yeah you know I, it was funny just to kind of wrap it up but i wanted to to also mention that i had made a post and someone had commented well where's all the research and then an autistic person had said hey so this is my experience and they're like but i need the research it's like that yeah. is your evidence like <laughs> listening to this person tell you is your evidence that's, that's exactly right up. And that's why I'm just, I'm baffled when people are like, I don't know, everything from gestalt language processing. I'm like, for my whole career, I wondered why I couldn't help autistic kids acquire language. And it's because I was using the, you know, traditional approach, right? For, um, for uh, neurotypical, the way neurotypical kids acquire language. Sorry, autistic kids don't acquire language the same way. That's been made very clear through my own lived experience as a parent, you know? And so right. um, it's just, I'm getting tired of the whole, well, you know, show me the research behind neurodiversity affirming practices. And I'm like, does mental health matter? Because if it does, we have plenty, you know? So it is um, just important that we are focusing on the true autism experts and learning from them. And that's what I continue to do. And I know you guys do too. Yeah, absolutely. Just because something's effective doesn't mean it's ethical. That's Ooh, really important to remember. Isn't that the truth? Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Some night we can have wine and we can get into that more, but yeah. We're, yeah. we're hanging well, out. Uh, Bottles of wine. Next, Bottles of wine. After the baby. baby, then wine. Yeah. After the baby, then we have wine and we, yes. we we get down to business. No. You guys, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate thank it. You. Thank we you, We will post all the links you mentioned too below so that everyone can catch all of those and find you on social as well. Yeah, all we appreciate right. it, Carrie. Until next time, be cool and stay awesome. Yes, you too. (laughs) Bye, guys. We'll see you later. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe, write a review, or share it with a friend. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.